This is the MyHeart.net podcast. This show is produced by Dr. Philip Johnson in conjunction with VitalEngine.com. Please welcome your host, Dr. Elaine Bouchard, a cardiology specialist of Birmingham, Alabama, at St. Vincent's Medical Center, part of Ascension. Welcome to our podcast uh, in MyHeart.net, and, and uh, today... Um, our topic is cancer and blood clots. You know who's at risk and uh, and how do we treat? And by blood clot, you know mostly we're talking about uh, the clot that on the venous system. This week uh, we'll talk about thrombophlebitis, you know, DVT, and and the killer clot. You know the pulmonary emboli. And with me today we have a special guest. It's uh, Dr. Yan Liu. He's the director of the cardio-oncology at Ascension in Seton in Texas. He's also medical director of Ascension Texas Cardiovascular Seton Northwest. He's also assistant professor of medicine at the University of Texas. Um, so, Jan, uh, welcome to MyHeart.net, and thank you for taking the time. Oh, thank you, Elaine. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here today. Thanks. So... You know, in, in some way, you know, today we'll try to talk about venous thrombosis, and mostly it's the DVT and and the the, the PTE or killer clot. Uh, we'll try to um, uh, we'll try to see uh, how common is this actually uh, in uh, as a cardiovascular complication in cancer. Uh, we'll look at the data, you know, with Jan, and maybe he'll tell us a little bit more about these blood clots. What does it mean for the cancer patient? Um, who's most at risk? Uh, we'll talk uh, a little bit about a special patient population like multiple myeloma and patient with brain cancer because they can really be quite a challenge. We're going to talk about how do we treat you know, a blood clot and also how can we prevent the recurrence because that's a significant problem you know, in patients you know, with cancer. So Jan, let's deep dive into uh, venal thrombosis or blood clots and cancer. Tell us a little bit about the data. Yeah, so uh, just like you mentioned, uh, venous thrombosis is a, such an important uh, condition we'll look at, especially in this cancer patient or, or what we call cardio-oncology patient, basically cancer patients with cardiovascular disease. Uh, usually, uh, when we talk about venous thrombosis, we're mostly talking about three types of conditions. Uh, first one is superficial venous thrombosis, which is milder form of venous thrombosis. A second one is deep vein thrombosis, or what we call DVT very commonly. And the third one is pulmonary emboli. And essentially, pulmonary emboli is it's a progression of DVT or deep vein thrombosis. But because it is at times could be so severe that it could be life-threatening, so pulmonary emboli or PE is very often discussed separately. And together as venous thrombosis, believe it or not, it is actually one of the most common complications from cancer, or if not the, the most common complications from, from the diagnosis of cancer. And there's actually a serious study looked at this huge patient population, um, you know, with first time recurrence of DVT or PE. Um, and what we find is actually if you have cancer diagnosis or presence of cancer, on average, that can increase the risk of venous thrombosis by sevenfold. And that's a, that's a huge number. But, you know, in addition to that, several, several specific types of cancer, such as 
hematological malignancy, such as what we, call, we very often talk about leukemia or lymphoma. And those type of cancer could increase the risk of venous thrombosis by almost 28-fold. I mean, that's a hugely increased risk for those patients. And even some solid tumors, such as lung cancer or gastric cancer, and notoriously pancreatic cancer, they can also increase the risk of venous thrombosis by 20-fold. And usually those highest risk happens during the first year of cancer diagnosis, partially because first year is also the year that patient will receive a lot of cancer treatment or chemotherapy or target therapy. And we'll be talking about that a little later. And in addition to all of this, the cancer itself, you know, depends on how it interacts with the host, with the, with the patient. If it's cancer is localized, even though the risk is higher in terms of venous thrombosis, but it's actually not that bad. But when the cancer really progresses, for example, if it metastasizes or becomes systematic, that alone can increase the risk of venous thrombosis by almost 19 to 20 fold. So um, this is, you know, we're talking about a hugely different risk just to have a diagnosis of cancer. And that's why many times we wanted to, uh, when we see a patient, you know, especially when we see a cardio-oncology patient, basically cancer patients have some cardiovascular risk factors or cardiovascular disease um, at the same time. In our office, we really wanted to pay attention to, uh, you know, the prevention of venous thrombosis. And obviously, if the patient already had history of DVT or PE, the prevention of the recurrence of the, 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 uh, the same conditions also very important. So it seems like we have some, you know, patient-related factors, um, which probably are the same as, as, as some of the other risks, you know, of getting a blood clot. Like, I guess we're talking about the weight and smokers and, and, uh, and previous, you know, DVT. It seems like there are some cancer-related, you know, kind of risk of, of getting these blood clots and and then maybe some the treatment you know related is that correct? Absolutely. Um, the patient relate, patient factor what we call or you know just uh, the, the uh, diagnosis of cancer and how the cancer is interacting with that host or cancer cell. Those are the patient factor. That's very important uh, because uh, you know as some of me some of us we already know that in cancer patients when a DVT or a pulmonary emboli uh, occur. They also could have, you know, very different uh, manifestation, meaning that usually if a venous thrombosis happens in cancer patients, it could involve much larger vascular structure, bigger veins such as portal veins, superior vena cava or inferior vena cava. A lot of those, you know, we don't usually see in a patient without cancer. And also... In cancer patients, when a DVT or PE, pulmonary MLI, occurs, most of the time or many times it could involve both sides. And that's also a very different uh, characteristic compared to the patient who has no cancer diagnosis. Um, and, you know, uh, uh, the other factors are also very important, like you just mentioned, because for cancer to be diagnosed, and the next step would be usually how to treat those cancer patients. So the cancer treatment or cancer therapeutics, a different type, radiation, chemotherapy, 
or target therapy, the newest immunotherapy, as you know, all of those could actually directly or indirectly increase the risk of venous thrombosis in this patient population. Now, some of these therapies, such as, you know, platinum-based chemotherapy, most commonly cisplatin, so they may have much higher risk uh, of venous thrombosis if a patient were to start those type of chemotherapy. Um, and other, you know, as we have known that a lot of times we have uh, angiogenesis inhibitors. We use a lot of those uh, type of therapy to control cancer, different solid tumors. Uh, some example, you know, nalotinib or panotinib. All those small, small molecule inhibitors uh, as angiogenesis inhibitor, it could actually, uh, um, you know, change the dynamic of endothelia in the in the venous system. So that will lead to a much higher risk of venous thrombosis too. And then we're probably going to be talk about later on some of the immunotherapy or or immunomodulant therapy, or even hormonal therapies, could have you know a, could be associated with much higher risk of venous thrombosis compared other types of chemotherapies in general. So definitely the treatment factor is also a huge one in terms of risk of venous thrombosis. What about the, um, uh, some of the cancer patients, particularly in regards to multiple myeloma and, um, and brain cancer? What are the issues there? Uh, that is a, a very important topic, Alain, because just like you said, multiple myeloma patients, uh, when we mentioned patient who has been diagnosed with, with multiple myeloma, we're talking about 10% of those patients at some point of their, uh, you know, their cancer treatment, they will have venous thrombosis. That's a very high risk. So 10% of them will, will have a clot somewhere. And uh, obviously, you know, we're going to talk about brain, a brain cancer patient a little later. They're also a very special patient population. Um, but, you know, for multiple myeloma, it's a lot of times we have not only the large amount of cancer cells. In this, in this you know, case, it's plasma cells. So a large amount of proliferating, highly proliferative uh, B cells, plasma cells in the bone marrow and also in the blood. And they also generate a large amount of protein we call lichen. So all of those will make our blood much more viscosity. So it's just thickening of the blood. So the blood viscosity increased directly by this type of condition it will lead to obviously much higher risk of venous thrombosis. But there are also other factors. So besides the multiple melanoma as a diagnosis, there are two other factors which you really consider when we look at the risk of venous thrombosis in this type of, this specific patient population. Uh, the other one will be, again, patient factors. So demographics, you know, the age, their BMI, um, and some of past medical problems you know, medical comorbidities, all could be contributing to potentially higher risk of venous thrombosis. Take example, if a patient's older than 75, they're at higher risk. If they're obese, their BMI is more than 25 or more than 30, they are at much higher risk. And sometimes, you know, race, like being Caucasian, will put you at a little bit higher risk of venous thrombosis in this type, in this specific type of, uh, you know, uh, patient population. But if someone had a history of uh, venous thrombosis in the past, that is also additional risk factor. 
And many times we, you know, cancer patients, they all have a portal cath, a central venous catheter. The presence of that will also increase the risk of venous thrombosis significantly. And obviously, a lot of times, it, when, the, when a cancer is diagnosed, unfortunately, some patient will also be diagnosed with a condition called hypercoagulable state. So it's basically blood clotting disorder. If that is an add-on factor because it's already, uh, you know, cancer itself increases risk of venous thrombosis, but hypercoagulable state is basically a disorder that increases your chance to form a clot. So the combination of those two obviously will make the risk of venous thrombus much higher. And a lot of other patients we know they have cardiovascular risk, uh, cardiovascular disease risk, such as diabetes. Uh, they may have actual cardiovascular disease. They may have kidney disease, chronically or chronic liver disease uh, or chronic lung disease. All those patients with those uh, comorbidities could have a little higher risk of venous thrombosis. And in addition to that, so we've talked about the diagnosis of multiple melanoma. It's a good example. And then the second is the patient factor. And thirdly is, again, the treatment. And in this specific situation, as you know, multiple melanoma could be treated with stem cell transplant, but many times we use immunotherapy. So immunomodulin therapy itself, such as bortezomib, and that could be a risk factor. Again, add on to the multiple melanoma to increase the risk of venous thrombosis. Uh, what about with the patients with the brain cancer? Yeah, and that is, you know, it's, to me, it's probably one of the toughest patient populations uh, we take care of in our cardio-oncology uh, clinic. Partially because, um, you know, a lot of times, actually the majority uh, of those patients, when they have brain cancer, is actually secondary, meaning that actually they have cancer somewhere else and metastasized or moved to the brain. So they're already very sick. But even with primary brain cancer, such as glioma, those patients actually could have risk of venous thrombosis as, as high as, as 30%. So 30% of those patients could have a venous thrombosis event at some point during their cancer treatment or during their lifetime. Uh, that's a huge number. One third of those patients are gonna have a clot somewhere. This is by, you know, obviously the multiple studies showing that pretty strong data. So that is one factor. But the other factor is uh, this type of patient, as you know, could also have very high risk of bleeding because they have tumor in their brain. So they could have higher risk of bleeding. Not only that, they could have higher risk of major bleeding or life-threatening bleeding. Basically, uh, you know, the bleeding inside the brain or what we call intracranial bleeding event. That makes the management very challenging because the first line or most common treatment for venous thrombosis or the venous thrombosis prevention is anticoagulation, basically blood thinners. So that will obviously increase risk of bleeding. And in, in this specific patient population, it's, it's really challenging at times because you have to really, really look at all the risk factors and make the best decision at that time to balance this risk of bleeding and obviously the risk of venous thrombosis at the same time. Yeah, really challenging. Well, yeah. uh, let's let's talk about this treatment. I mean, uh, yeah. you know, we we have a patient with cancer and they were found to have a blood clot in the leg and it was, you know, very, very long and it, it, it went all the way to the uh, 
uh, common femoral vein, and yeah. we're afraid it's going to get developed into you know PT uh, or more pulmonary embolism. So how do we treat these patients uh, acutely? And then maybe let's phase into you know some of the different category. Like for example, how do you treat a patient has breast cancer, uh, a brain cancer, and you know a DVT? How do you treat these patients at least acutely in the hospital setting? Yeah, very good question. Um, now, first of all, the, the acute acutelase or the first-line treatment when a DVT or pulmonary emboli occurs is probably the most important step because it's not only it can slow down or control the progression of the uh, thrombosis process, but also directly could actually affect the long-term outcome of this patient and long-term life quality of those patients. And I would say the, I, I think, you know, um, especially since the last five years, we have probably overall two modalities. One modality is most commonly we discussed is the medication-based therapy. But the other one is what we call procedure-related or procedure-based therapy. Now, uh, just very briefly for the procedure-related or procedure-based therapy. This is important because as we actually, uh, as you mentioned, as we discussed earlier, in those cancer patients, when the thrombosis happens or pulmonary emboli happens, usually they are much higher in terms of clot burden. And usually they, they will involve both sides instead of one side. So they also will involve much bigger vascular structure. As you mentioned, they could actually have totally have common femoral vein thrombosis and progress into iliac vein and all the way to IVC or inferior vena cava. So in those situations, if it's truly severe, very high club burden and really affecting the uh, uh, you know hemodynamics. Then we have option right now to do potentially what we call thrombectomy. So thrombectomy is basically a procedure going there uh, to take the clot out. Uh, obviously, it's the simple way to put it. Uh, but you know, for example, in our institution, we can do a mechanical thrombectomy in patient who has a pretty severe or massive pulmonary emboli if they have issues like hypotension. Uh, or very high oxygen requirement, and we can go in there, do uh, a mechanic thrombectomy, take the clot out. Maybe more popular in most institutions, we can do a catheter-based. Basically, you put a catheter in the, the vascular structure and then give the patient lytics, uh, in, in a hoping really to lyse some of the clot because the clot's obviously acutely formed. So those are procedure-based therapy for only a very selected high-risk patient population. When you do these interventions, Jan, um, do you actually use some protection like a temporary IVC filter or, or not, not necessarily? Yeah, great question. So obviously, it, if it's involving pulmonary emboli, we pretty much go in there and make sure the patient does not have you know, LV clot, does not have uh, thrombosis in their left ventricle. Because at times they could have a you know a PFO or uh, or communication between left atrium and right atrium that could move. Obviously that could be a high risk situation. But as long as we make sure that's not the case, we you know basically go in the right cycle to the RV uh, and pulmonary uh, structure to you know get rid of the clot. And as you said, many times if there's large clot burden in the venous system, such as uh, uh, like you know lower extremity, common femoral vein, it could be both sides, could be one side. If we go in there trying to take the clot out and move, actually go to the lung, and that's not ideal. In that situation, as you exactly mentioned, we may actually try to use some protection. Many times we'll put IVC filter in 
so that the clot will have no chance to move to the lawn, will not cause any life-threatening situation, then we go in there work on this uh, big venous uh, thrombosis in a way that's safe for the patient. Very good question. Yeah. Um, but besides the procedure-based therapy, I think the mainstream or the first line of the therapy for most venous, venous thrombosis or pulmonary emboli is anticoagulation. Um, you know, as patients know, the blood thinners. Uh, usually in an acute setting or in a hospital, we start patient with heparin, IV heparin, or heparin infusion because that's the uh, uh, quickest way to, to, uh, to take effect, to get the blood thinners in the system. And also, it could be the safest way because heparin, you know, uh, uh, agents just like heparin, they, they could actually get, get out of your system. If there's a bleeding event were to happen, we can stop it and then we can control the situation quickly. So I would say IV heparin is probably the, uh, the very first line for that treatment. In many situations, we also use the sub-Q injection of low molecular weight uh, heparin. Uh, known to some patients as Lovenox, uh, but it's really just low molecular weight heparin. And then most recently, as you know, last five, six years, we're using more and more uh, uh, direct oral anticoagulation agents, so DOAC we call it. Basically, it's a pill, uh, and, and at, at different dose, we can give it to our patients uh, in an acute setting to start a, to start a treatment and this is really the, the technology has advanced to the point that we are, um, have the luxury to offer this type of therapy. Now, we have actually have pretty strong data, as you know, uh, in this arena. Uh, um, you know, one of the very typical studies is the Hakusai study uh, that is really looking at the uh, uh, potential uh, uh, efficacy of indoxaban compared to the traditional uh, delta parent therapy. And they've shown that the uh, indoxaban, the direct uh, oral anticoagulation agent uh, given to the patient as a pill, uh, can actually reduce the rate, rate of or risk of recurrent uh, venous thrombosis by almost 30% uh, if it's added onto the regime of Dr. Parrot. Uh, of course, the bleeding risk is also a little higher, 6.9% uh, uh, in the uh, indoxaban group compared to 4% in the Dr. Parrot group. But the amount of the reduction, risk reduction, 29%, is really, really, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, I would say satisfying because we know that that's going to be changing our practice. It did at that time. Uh, and also another agent, Apixaban, uh, shown by the Caravaggio study or the Caravaggio investigators that 10 milligram twice a day uh, as a loading dose given to the patient for seven days and then followed by the regular dose of uh, the Apixaban 5 milligram twice a day. That compared to the, the traditional dot parent not only has reduction of the... Uh, the risk of, you know, recurrent venous thrombosis, uh, but the risk of major bleeding was found to be very similar. So that is, to me, is a very, very uh, uh, important study in the field showing you, showing us that uh, uh, um, DOACs or direct or anticoagulation agents not only are safe, but also really have better efficacy and a safety profile in terms of prevention of uh, recurrence of uh, venous thrombosis. Very similar, as you know, the roxaban has been shown by the other study to have very similar uh, efficacy and a safety prof profile compared to apixaban. And as you mentioned, for brain, brain cancer patients, you know, besides this type of therapy, 
the other factor we want to consider is, um, you know, something we have talked about earlier, that is the risk of bleeding. So most of the time, if the cancer has involved brain or if either secondary or primary uh, cancer um, diagnosis, we do not routinely recommend uh, anticoagulation therapy or prevention for those type of patients just because the risk of bleeding is too high. And once bleed, usually they're, you know, they're life-threatening, they're major bleed because it's, it's intracranial bleeding. However, at times, if the patient's undergoing some procedure or procedure or surgery, then that can, you know, the short-term anticoagulation, and most of the time is by heparin or low molecular weight heparin can be considered Depends on the safety profile of the patient. Depends on patients, obviously, like, you know, platelet, you know, uh, number, their uh, blood counts, and the severity of their brain cancer. So that is, I think, you know, we have probably a, a little guideline over there, but a lot of independent physician discretion in the practice for those patients, for that specific patient population. Some, some of the big issue also is, is about the, so we're, we're treating acutely the, the blood clot that is there. And the problem with cancer patient is that um, there's a really an increase in the recurrence. And, and I know when I trained in cardiology in the 80s, um, you know, after the acute treatment, which was, you know, at that time, still the, the heparin and, and um, is even starting some of the um, low molecular weight heparin. It was actually, we were giving it for life. You know, they were just yep. getting you know, treatment for life. So um, do you do kind of the same thing this time, but more, more like using the oral, uh, newer oral anticoagulants? Or? Yeah, so I think to be honest, even though that's uh, uh, the low molecular weight heparin is uh, it's still old school, it's a very old school agent, but to me, it still remains the top agent. Uh, uh, especially in a uh, in a tough situation for the patient who has venous clotting, but at the same time they have very uh, significant risk of bleeding. You know, many times as we know, they will have low platelet amount. You know, uh, low platelet counts, and they may actually have chronic bleeding, uh, and their their blood counts change uh, very dynamically with their chemotherapy. And low molecular weight uh, um, heparin can provide a, um, almost perfect solution because we can just stop that agent. It's going to be gone within, you know, hours uh, from our patient's system. And this is not something we, at this at this point, still not something we can offer in an outpatient setting, for example, uh, by other newer newer generation, what we call direct uh, anticoagulant agent or DOAX. Because it really takes much longer for those agents to be actually getting all of a patient's system. We do have reversal agents now, but that requires, you know, hospitalization and urgent in an urgent situation, obviously. So I would have to say, you know, it still remained the mainstream uh, for, especially for prevention of recurrence in an ambulatory setting. However, as you have mentioned, right now we do have some other options we can potentially offer to our patients uh, if the patients, you know, the right patient population. Uh, so selectively, we can actually give those patients some of the. Uh, or agents uh, that is uh, that could be having a very similar efficacy, and a lot of times could be similar in their safety profile. Profile. So some of the agents, as we talk about, is the uh, apixaban and others, including rivaroxaban. And in my practice right now, I think 
probably majority of those patients, if they're safe for them, we actually provide the DOAX agent, like apixaban or uroxaban. Uh, for very select high-risk population, we still actually give them a basic low molecular weight heparin injection on a daily basis for a long period of time, especially those patients who have recurrent bleeding on the direct or anticoagulant agent DOAX. Um, in those situations, really, we have to go back to the basics. That is the uh, uh, low molecular weight heparin. Very important. So uh, these were patients, of course, that have had blood clots and, and we want to prevent a recurrence. Now, we, we know, and, and some of them, you have to bring them in the hospital. Now, let's talk about the patient, the totally the outpatient, uh, you know, because most of the blood clots occur actually out of the hospital and about maybe two thirds of the, the problem with the DVT and the clots forming occur when the patient is at home. How do we actually, uh, you know, prevent the blood clots from happening in the first place or so, so-called primary prevention? I mean, who do we select for this? I mean, obviously, it's not all cancer patients. You mentioned, you know, some are too at risk of bleeding, like, you know, patients that have brain cancer or maybe someone that's had, you know, gastric cancer has a lot of, you know, GI bleed. But how, how do we actually select the group of patients that is maybe at risk and how do we treat them kind of long term? Very, very important topic and very important question. I think, you know, this is really going to uh, uh, lead us back to 2008, uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Corona and colleague in Cleveland Clinic has, you know, they've done this nice study and really established a score system um, that is completely validated clinically. It's called uh, obviously Corona score. So that score, it is used in an ambulatory setting or outpatient setting uh, to look at a cancer patient to see, hey, are these patients high risk? Should we start a primary prevention for those patients? Uh, uh, in terms of risk of venous thrombosis. So um, the way the score was established is this. They essentially put in probably three category things into consideration. One is different type of cancer, as you mentioned earlier, very importantly. Uh, we all know, you know, any type of cancer could increase risk of venous thrombosis. On average, it's about sevenfold. But we also mentioned earlier, some cancers such as lymphoma, leukemia, could be a little bit higher risk. So the score actually established, you know, for, for example, if the patient has solid tumor like gastric or pancreatic cancer, then those patients will get actually two points. And for other patients have lymphoma or lung cancer, they will have one point to be added on this risk, risk profile score. And besides the cancer diagnosis, then it's the patient factor again. So we look at BMI, if they have a BMI above 35, and then if those patients could have an abnormal complete blood count profile, such as hemoglobin is lower than 10, their leukocyte counts more than 11,000, and most importantly, if their platelet is more than 350,000, and those will give them, each will give them one point. And then we will put those scores together. If the patient has scored three or higher, that is considered to be an increased risk. Uh, for venous thrombosis. And then if obviously there's no active bleeding or no contraindication for anticoagulation, those patients should be considered for a routine uh, venous thrombosis prophylaxis or prevention treatment. Now, Dr. Corona uh, actually did a study uh, in recently in 2019 using one of the 
agent we have discussed earlier, rivaroxaban, one of the uh, pretty commonly used uh, uh, DOAX agents. So they looked at this agent and, and to see, hey, in an ambulatory setting and also high-risk patient population, so score a uh, corona score, score of two or above. Uh, so give those patients, you know, uh, uh, rivaroxaban 10 milligrams, so it's a lower dose of uh, uh, rivaroxaban for about six months. Can we see a difference in, term, in terms of DVT occurrence? So it's primary prevention, not recurrence. It's the first event. What they find is actually there's a mild effect in that study. Um, so rivaroxaban at 10 milligram reduced the risk of venous thrombus from 8.8% in placebo group to 6% in the uh, rivaroxaban group. It was not statistically significant. Uh, and also the bleeding risk, especially major bleeding risk, is a little higher at 2% compared to 1% uh, in the rivaroxaban group compared to placebo. So that has shown some early light that maybe the direct or anticoagulant agent could be helpful. So the same year, actually, another group, uh, Dr. Mark Karras group, uh, this is the study is basically done by uh, award investigators. They've actually studied another different DOAC agent, Apixaban. They also use a lower, lower dose, um, 2.5 milligram, because regular is 5.0 milligram twice a day. So they used Apixaban 2.5 milligram twice a day, essentially looking at a very similar patient population. So corona score of two or above, and treat those patients with, for about six months. Then they look at the primary occurrence of venous thrombosis. What they find is very interesting. So in the placebo group, there's about 10% or 10.4% of venous thrombosis occurrence. But in the apixaban group, treatment group, the risk is about uh, the occurrence is about 4.2%. So almost two, uh, uh, almost say, you know, it's a twofold difference, you know, if, if you compare the apixaban uh, uh, to the uh, placebo group. And that's a very significant reduction. It was actually also statistically significant. And then the major bleeding, also a little higher. So it was 2.1% compared uh, in the apixaban uh, group compared to 1.1% in placebo group which is kind of expected, very consistent with the rivaroxaban study done by uh, Dr. Corona. So, but the difference in this study is really, we've seen a stat statistically significant difference between the apixaban 2.5 twice a day and the placebo group, showing us that the DOAX, especially apixaban, can actually be very helpful at low dose to reduce the risk of venous thrombosis in, in this cancer patients as a primary prevention. And uh, it, is, it is important because this is obviously a pill, you know, it's a medication we give it to the patient, they can take it home, and it's, uh, you know, it can be easily prescribed to them. And to me, uh, this will be something that's gonna be continue to have a big impact uh, in our daily practice, especially in a cardio-oncology practice. So which one do you use in your practice? Yeah, so my personal uh, choice, uh, is very consistent with the data. It's, it's apixaban uh, because the, because the uh, statistic significance. But many times, you know, uh, as you know, uh, our our practice also could be. We also need to take in consideration of the patient factor. Sometimes the patient's like, I do not want to take the medication twice a day. I, there's no way I'm going to take that medication twice a day. I'm going to take once a day medication. And then in that situation, rivaroxaban 10 milligram once a day 
could be a reasonable reasonable replacement of that. And you know, it's better than than not taking any Apixaban. You know, when we if if they can at least take one uh, one time a day, ten milligram ruvastatin. But if we everything's same, everything's similar, I will still go with the data that that's shown to us. Um, um, so uh, a Pixaban for now, but I think if we have future studies, you know, and maybe either one. Well, this study is uh, mostly looking at one year um, after initiation of the treatment. Do we have any long-term follow-up? Yeah, so I do not think we have, uh, you know, uh, long-term outcome data, uh, you know, as a follow-up in this, either of those two studies. It will be interesting to see. Uh, you know, if they are doing that or, you know, what's going to show. Now, one thing that could be challenging is that, you know, for cancer patients, it could be tough to, to follow them long term because uh, the patient attrition from the study group or study population could be huge. Um, you know, um, so I'm also kind of you know, eager to see if there could be any data, uh, you know, as a follow up from either of those two studies as a long term outcome, not only the morbidity or mortality, but also the life quality. I think the other very important respect, uh, very important factor to consider. Do we have any guidelines on the treatment of a patient uh, for prevention of um, venous thrombosis? So the, for the guidelines um, about the anticoagulation in cancer patients, uh, I think right now it's still being developed to me. Uh, I, I think in cardiology. Uh, I do not think there's any specific update uh, regarding to that, uh, regarding to this area. But in general, our, our cardiac oncology guidelines actually has been developed right now uh, in European uh, 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 Society of Cardio- Cardiology, and to be uh, expect to be out, I think, in 2023. I hope this is one of those things could be um, it could be in the guidelines as part of cardiac oncology guideline. Um, but uh, you know, I have. I'm not aware of, you know, any official guideline just specifically on this, you know, uh, this part of practice. Yeah. Well, uh, Jan, thank you very much. I think this was very, very helpful. It's such an important problem. Uh, Venous thrombosis and pulmonary emboli in patients with cancer. uh, We deal with that, you know, every day. And I think uh, this was a lot of good information. So I want to thank you for your time. And, um, uh, and next time, I think we're going to have a very, very interesting uh, podcast. We'll follow up next week with, um, with again, Dr. Yan Liu, and we'll discuss how can a heart attack affect your cancer. Don't miss it. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me today. To learn more from our team of cardiologists, please visit us at myheart.net. You can also follow us on social media by searching myheart.net on Facebook and Twitter. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss our next episode.